Matthew 26, and we will pick up in verse 57. 57, and we'll do through the end of the chapter to verse 75. Matthew 26, verse 57 says, Then those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain false witness against Jesus, so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward. But later on two came forward and said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes, his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. Then they spat in his face and beat him with their fist, and others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus the Galilean, but he denied it before them all, saying, I do not know what you are talking about. And when he had gone out of the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, This man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. A little later the bystander came up and said to Peter, Surely you too are one of them, for even the way you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said, Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we come to you, Lord, uh, thankful for the time to be together with your people. And Lord, to open up your word. And Lord, we do pray that you would impart to us, Lord, wisdom and understanding. Lord, grace and mercy, Lord, that we so desperately need in order to finish our course. Lord, help us to um, be faithful to You. Lord, seeing how easy it is, Lord, for even the choicest of Your servants, Lord, even someone as imminent as uh, the Apostle Peter was able to succumb to temptation and, Lord, able to fail in such a grievous way uh, against You. So, Lord, we know that if he was unable to stand on his own strength, then surely we cannot stand either. And so we are in need of your mercy, and Lord, we need your grace to help us in our time of need. And we pray that you would give to us all that is necessary, Lord, that we might be faithful and true to you. So Lord, teach us tonight from your word, and Lord, help us to understand, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, well, we are here coming down uh, toward the end of the book of Matthew, and the events that have led up to uh, the sufferings of Christ have begun uh, in this chapter, right? It began there in the garden when he was uh, crying out to God, uh, sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. And then after that time of prayer, then his captors came, and now he has been seized and taken, 
he's been arrested, and all the events that will lead to his death and then ultimately his resurrection are now in progress. Those wheels are turning, and that is where everything is headed. And this is all a part of his sufferings, the sufferings of Christ uh, that he experienced while on this earth, all culminating with the sufferings of the cross. That was his greatest trial that he underwent, and yet he faces all these things without ever committing a sin. We know that in difficult situations, right, in very hard situations, when there's a lot of pressure upon us, it is very hard for any of us to go through those times without committing some sin against God and some sin against our fellow man. And yet Jesus faced a trial that none of us will ever face. The severity of that trial, the magnitude is something that we can't even begin to understand or comprehend. And yet he went through all these things without ever committing any sin, right? And this is brought up in 1 Peter chapter 2, that there was no sin in his mouth, no sin, no deceit. Uh, he was pure. He was spotless in the way that he conducted and behaved while his captors and those who are the ones that arrested him and put him on trial and falsely accused him, their sins are quite evident and apparent in the way that they treat him. Even if he was guilty of the things that they said, even then the way that they treat him is lacking in any humanity. It's complete cruelty, barbarism in the way, in the hatred that they have for him. And it just shows you the depths of human depravity and also the hatred that men naturally have, the enmity that exists between sinful men and a holy God. What they did to Christ and the, the hatred that they showed there, it gives us an indication of what we are like in our natural state against God. Because apart from the grace of God, everything that happens to Jesus, all any of us could have done this. And in our natural state, this is what we were. We were enemies and we were in the same camp as those who did these things. Though we were not physically present, we were there in a spiritual sense taking part in these types of behaviors and attitudes against Christ, that in our natural state. And it is only the grace of God that has delivered us from being an enemy and to instead being a child of God. So let's pick up in verse 57 and we'll make our way here through the end of this chapter. 57, those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and elders were gathered together. But Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. Here, the one that they take Jesus to first is Caiaphas, who is at this time the high priest. And there is some evidence, both from the Bible and extra biblical literature, that during this time, the high priest, there was a kind of a cabal of leadership in the Jewish realm uh, around this family, Annas and Caiaphas, who were high priests and they were related to one another and that there was, uh, it was kind of a big scam of, of things that were going on. And they had significant uh, authority, leadership in the country there over their own people, but also as, as intermediaries between the Romans and the governors of the Romans at that time as well. So these are very much religious, but also political and civil uh, leaders, and they are kind of the representatives of the people. And we know that even from our study in Hebrews, that the high priest, in terms of office and role in the nation of Israel, the high priest is the most significant religious leader for all of the people. The entire priestly service and the worship of Israel is constituted in that temple priestly worship, and all of that finds its culmination in this one office 
who is the high priest. And as we read on Sunday from Hebrews chapter 5, that one of the characteristics of the high priest is that he is to be compassionate, to be tender, to be merciful, right? He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and misguided because he himself is beset with weaknesses. And yet here we see that the high priest, right, the one who is the leader of the people of God, is so contrary to God, has such hatred toward God, that he is the one, in terms of the Israelites, most responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Not that he's the only one, but in terms of authority and responsibility amongst the Jewish people, he bears the lion's share of the guilt and blame. And this is the head of the church or of the people of God during this time. And it shows you that just because someone has the name uh, of an Israelite or of a Christian, and just because someone has a position such as a high priest or such as a pastor, does not ne necessarily mean that they are true, sincere believers and that they are true followers of God. Because here, this high priest who should be a true believer and should be leading people to worship God and a follower of God, yet he is the one who puts to death the only begotten Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, who is the exact representation of the glory of God, right? In human form, God in human flesh. And what they did to Christ is what they would do to God the Father if they could go to heaven and do it to Him. So they took it out on His Son. And in the same way, this will happen through many generations. Now Christ is in heaven with His Father, and they cannot go there. So who will they take it out on now? on his children, right? On his people, on his church, right? And the church will face threats and will face persecutions, not only from outside the realm of Christianity, from pagans, from Muslims, from Buddhists, from Hindus, certainly those groups are more than willing and ready to persecute true Christians, but even within the veil of Christianity, of nominal Christianity or cultural Christianity, or those groups that claim to be Christian, there have risen up through the years many enemies to true faith and true godliness. And to true following of Jesus Christ. And this is an example of one such thing. So here, they lead him to Caiaphas, who is the high priest, and then the scribes and elders are gathered there together. So it is a council of significant, important religious and social, civil leaders that make up this council in Israel during this time. And the chief of them is the high priest, but then there are other religious leaders, other priests, the scribes, the Pharisees, and then even those who would be influential in society that would be there as a part of this council of elders who represent and deal with the affairs of the Jewish state, right, of the Jewish state, and in many ways uh, dealing with the Romans as well and dealing with those kinds of things. If we go to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, we'll see here that this council had already convened and had been discussing these things already, okay? So this wasn't something that happened uh, haphazardly, uh, spur of the moment, randomly, but rather these plans and proceedings had been in place already. John eleven forty seven 47 says, Therefore the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and were saying, What are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, 
nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people, than that the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into the city called Ephraim. And there he stayed uh, with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was near, and many went to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. So they were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, What do you think, that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so that they might seize him. So here their plans are already in place of what they want to do to Christ. And now what's happening in Matthew 26 is the fulfillment of what they had already planned and conjured up in their own mind of what they were going to do to him. So now they're gathered together. They have seized him. They've arrested him. They have him before them, and they're going to do with him whatever they wish. Then 58, Peter. Peter is also following at a distance. There we know when Jesus, when they came and arrested Jesus, Peter first cut off the, high, the servant of the high priest. He cut off his ear. Jesus healed him. But then when they seized and arrested Jesus, all of the disciples scattered, just as had been prophesied, that the shepherd will be struck and the sheep will scatter. And this is what happened to them. But now Peter has mustered up a little bit of courage and is following along Right, He hasn't completely abandoned Christ. He's following at a distance because he wants to see what is going to happen. Right, What's going to happen to him? What will be the outcome of these events? So his love of Christ is not completely extinguished. Right, And his desire to follow him and to know and to have interest in what is taking... He hasn't just completely abandoned him at this point, but he wants to know what is going to take place. And he's there at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest and entered in and sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So here he's come into the courtyard of this uh, residence of the high priest, right? And all of this has taken place during the middle of the night. So it's not being done in a formal sense in public or in a public court, but rather it's being done here in this courtyard of the high priest. And Jesus is in an inner part where he can still see him, and Peter is now on the outside in this courtyard where he can see what's going on, but there are other people that are gathered there as well. So he's not in there by himself. Also, if we go to John 18, the disciple that Jesus loved is also there as well. John 18, 15, and 16. says, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. So Peter does not know the people there, but the other disciple, who most take to be John, this is how John is referring to himself, 
he was known to the high priest and to those there. And so he was permitted access to come in. And then he asked them if they would let Peter in as well. And this is how Peter gains entrance here into the courtyard to see what is going to happen to Jesus. And also it is paving the way for the fulfillment of the very words of Christ concerning his denial. Then verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council kept trying to obtain a false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. They did not find any, even though many false witnesses came forward, but two, but later on two came forward. And they said, This man stated, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Here, um, they're trying to get a false testimony against Jesus so that they can put him to death. They know that there is nothing that he has done that is deserving of death, right? Jesus has even challenged him before. Uh, what, if, what good deed have I done that you're going to crucify me for, right? Healing the blind, uh, giving, uh, uh, raising people from the dead, healing people from leprosy, giving uh, gifts to the poor, right? What is the evil deed that he's committed that is so worthy of him being put to death? So they know that he's not a factious man. He's not a troublemaking man. He's not out there causing riots, insurrections. He's not a murderer. He's not a thief. He's not an adulterer. He's not done any of these things. They have nothing for which to charge him. They're going to bring him. They don't have the authority to put him to death on their own. So they are going to have to bring him to the Romans and request the Romans to put him to death. And the Romans, though they are wicked people and barbaric people, but they still have courts and they still have laws. And you can't just say, hey, put that guy to death and they're going to do it. There has to be some basis for doing so. And we know as we'll go through this, that he goes to Pilate and to Herod and back to Pilate. And Pilate is saying that he's not done anything that's worthy of death. And Herod is saying there's not anything that he's done that's worthy of death. And they try to pacify the Jews, yet they are unpacifiable. Okay, so it's not like they can just make up some charges and just tell them, and they're going to do whatever they, whatever they say. So they have to have something that's legitimate, something that will stick by which they can bring charges against Christ, and they use false testimony, false testimony against him so that they can put him to death. But even there amongst the false testifiers, they can't find anyone, anyone who has any credibility, and they keep contradicting one another. They'll say this, and another will say this, and their testimony is contradictory. And in a court, in an official proceeding, it's going to be obvious that these guys, they just have an angst against Jesus. They don't like him, and, and that's why all of this is happening, right, to anyone who's looking at it objectively. And then they finally come up with two, two. And their testimony is that he said... I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. This is their charge. This is what he said. I will destroy it and then I will rebuild it in three days. Now in this, they are themselves violating the law. They are transgressing the law sure. at many, many points. First, Deuteronomy 19. Deuteronomy 19 Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. 
says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. If a malicious witness rises up against a man to accuse him of wrongdoing, then both men who have the dispute shall stand before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who will be in office in those days. The judges shall investigate thoroughly. And if the witness is a false witness, and if he has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him just as he intended to do to his brother. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. The rest will hear and be afraid and will never again do such an evil thing among you. Thus you shall show not no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. So here, when there is a malicious witness, and these two rascals would constitute malicious witnesses, right? Because they are bearing false witness. Then what is supposed to happen to the false accuser is what would have happened to the one they're accusing. In this case, they're seeking to put him to death. So these two men should die. But that assumes the judges are themselves just. But when the judges who are to hear the case are in cahoots with the false witnesses, then what can you do? Right? Then there is no hope. There is, and this is not about justice and righteousness. This is about shedding innocent blood, about murder, about putting to death the only begotten Son of God. And so it is not a matter of truth and righteousness. Also, Mark 14, Mark 14 57 to 59. Mark 14, 57 says, Some stood up and began to give false testimony against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. Not even in this respect was their testimony consistent. Right? So they're not consistent in the things that they are saying. And if we go to John chapter 2, we'll see this is the passage when Jesus says that he will destroy the temple, this temple, and in three days he will rebuild it. But is he talking about the physical temple? No. He is not talking about the physical temple, so they're misrepresenting him. They're misrepresenting him in what he said. John 2, 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show? us as your authority for doing these things. Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word which Jesus had spoken. So he's not talking about the physical temple, the building temple. He's talking about his own body. Destroy my body, put me to death, and then I will raise it up three days later. But they're accusing him of saying that he was going to destroy the temple made with hands and then rebuild a temple made without hands, right? This is what they're accusing him. So they're not even representing what he said in John chapter 2 correctly, right? And this is why they are completely inconsistent. Then verse 62. The high priest stood up and said to him, Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus kept silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Here, when all of this is taking place, Jesus is quiet. He's not defending himself, right? He's not speaking up, right? And this is twofold. One, 
these charges are so ridiculous and preposterous yeah. that he doesn't even need to say anything. But secondly, is he trying to get off? Is he trying to escape what they want to do to him? No. So it, he knows that they're going to put him to death. He knows that it will be an act of injustice. And in this case, he's not seeking justice for himself, but he's going to the cross to die. And he's doing that willingly. So he's not making a defense of himself. He doesn't go out and hire a team of lawyers and people to come and defend him so that he can escape and get off the hook because he has determined, he set his face like Flint to go to the cross. And this is what he knows the father has determined for him. And so he is giving no defense. And this also is to fulfill what is said in Isaiah chapter 53. In Isaiah 53 verse 7, it says that he is like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And the sheep that before it shears is silent. Isaiah 53, 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he did not open his mouth. Here, he did not open his mouth because he is willingly going to the cross. He's not protesting. He's not kicking against the goads. He is doing this willingly. He's going as a sheep that is going to be slaughtered there for the people of God. And this is what he does for our sake. So he does not answer, even though they're testifying against him and it's bothering the high priest. And they're asking him, why won't you answer? Why won't you give a response? Because usually the best Solution is just to keep your mouth shut, right? <laughs> In these kinds of situations, especially when you're dealing with people who you know are not, they're not seeking truth and righteousness. Right. Now, if you're dealing with people who are trying to understand or you're in a court of law and it's about presenting the facts, well, then yes, we should speak up and we should defend ourselves in that case. In this case, Jesus knows what he's going to do. He's going to the cross willingly. But secondly, we're not dealing with honest people here. Right. We're dealing with dishonest people, unjust people who just want to murder him. And no matter what he says, are they going to be convinced? Nope. No, they're just going to take it and twist it and then use it to condemn him. So in this case, the best policy is just keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut and don't say anything. However, then in verse 63, the high priest says, I adjure you by the living God that you tell us whether you are the Christ, the Son of God. Here, to adjure is to put someone under an oath, to put him under an oath. And the high priest, because of his office and his position, he does have this authority. Just as a judge in the courtroom has the authority to put a witness under an oath, under an oath to testify and to speak what is true, and if not, under the threat of punishment, right, of, of, of perjury there in the court. And now that he puts him under this oath, now Jesus will speak. He will speak because that is what is the right thing to do, because he's always pursuing what is righteous. Leviticus chapter 5 Leviticus 5.1 says, Now if a person sins after he hears a public adjuration to testify when he is a witness, whether he is seen or otherwise known, if he does not tell it, 
then he will bear his guilt. So here, when a witness is put under an adjuration as to something he's seen or something he's heard, and he fails to testify, then he will bear his guilt. So for Jesus to not speak now would be for him to commit sin. So what will he do? He will speak up. He will speak up and he will say what needs to be said. And what he puts him under the oath is tell us whether you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This is what we want to know. Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? Now, do they not know that he's been saying this? They know that he's been saying and proclaiming these things. He's been doing it for many, many years. So this is not honestly, honesty. They're not looking, they're not seeking the truth. They're not trying to figure out who he is. They already know what he's been saying and they already have made up their mind against him, right? They just want to hear him publicly in the court of law or in this official proceeding for him to say this so that now they can charge him and accuse him of blasphemy. And while they don't believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus indeed the Christ, the Son of God? Absolutely. He absolutely is. And so he needs to give testimony and testify to what is true and right. And that's why he says, Jesus said to him in verse 64, You have said it yourself. Nevertheless, I tell you, hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Here, when he says, you have said it yourself, he is saying to them, what you have said is true, is a true, accurate des description of who I am. You have yourself testified and said that I am the Christ, the Son of God. If we go to Mark, Mark chapter 14, Mark 14, verse 62 Actually, verse 61, 1461, says, But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. So here he's not circumventing. He's not saying, well, that's what you say, but I'm not going to answer. No, when he says you, what you have said, or you have answered in this way in Matthew, he is emphatically saying that, yes, I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. And then to give you further confirmation of this, of what I, who I am and what I will do, you will see me sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You don't believe it. And he knows that they don't believe it. Right. But you're going to believe it one day because you're going to see me sitting at the right hand of power and you're going to see me coming with the clouds of power, of, of the clouds of heaven. These are the things that will be manifest to you. So here Jesus is even taking it further, right? They just ask him, are you the Christ, the Son of God? He could have said yes or no. He says yes. But then he even adds to that, I will prove to you that I am the Christ, the Son of God, when you see me in my exalted state. My exalted state, right now, I'm in a humbled state, right? He is in his humility. They cannot see his glory. Their eyes are blinded. There is a veil that lies over them, and all they see is a man, and they believe he is a blaspheming man because he's making himself equal to God. And if he is merely a man, that would be blasphemy. 
But if He is more than a man, if He is both fully man and fully God, and He's making Himself equal with God, then it is not blasphemy. And here He ascribes to Himself traits that are only true of the Christ and also can only be true if that Christ is indeed the Son of God. How can a mere man sit at the right hand of power? How can a mere man come with the clouds of glory? Now, this is something that no mere man can do, but the Christ, who is both God and man, he can take and fulfill both of these things. And this is what he says to them. Now, these are likely references to Psalm 110, verse 1. Psalm 110, verse 1, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. That is commonly understood as a messianic psalm, a psalm about the Christ and what He will be and what He will do, and that He will sit at the right hand of God. So when He says, you will see me sitting at the right hand of power, they know of Psalm 110 verse 1. They know that it is a, uh, a psalm that is messianic, and He is applying that to Himself, right? He is saying that that is fulfilled in me. And then also, coming with the clouds would be Daniel chapter 7. Daniel 7, 13 to 14 is also a messianic passage that was interpreted by the Jews as referring to the days of the Messiah. And Jesus is telling them that these passages, you will see them fulfilled in me, in me. Though you don't see it now, you will see it one day. Daniel 7:13. I kept looking in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. So there, the Son of Man, who is coming with the clouds of heaven. And this is what Jesus says here. You will see me sitting at the right hand of power, and you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven. And also in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him, so it is to be. Amen. There he is coming with the clouds. And when he comes, every eye will see him, and those who pierced him will mourn over him. Right, because they will then understand the ramifications of what they have done. That they have put to death the Christ, rejected Him, and rejected God Himself. Verse 65, Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? Behold, you have now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they answered, He deserves death. Here, when he says this, now they have what they're looking for. We don't need witnesses anymore. We're all witnesses to what he has just said, right? We don't need some uh, liars to come up and give false witness. We have all heard him out of his own mouth right here in the presence of us all. He has blasphemed because he is taking on to himself things that are only true of the Christ and that are only true of the Son of God. And this is, in their mind, this is blasphemy. This would also be consistent with John chapter 5. 
John 5:18 John chapter 5 verse 18 This was earlier in his ministry it says for this reason therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the sabbath but also was calling God his own father making himself equal with God Right, he was breaking the Sabbath. Now, when it says he was breaking the Sabbath, does it mean that Jesus was actually breaking the Sabbath? Of course not. Of course not. No way. No way. He was breaking it according to whom? According to them. According to their traditions. They are legalists. So when he breaks their traditions, they're saying he's breaking the law, but he's not breaking the law. He's not breaking the Sabbath. He's actually keeping it. They're the ones that are breaking the Sabbath by creating their many traditions. But not only was he breaking the Sabbath in their mind, he also is blaspheming in their mind because he's calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Right? We call God our father, but when we call God our father, we mean it in the sense that we are endeared to God through redemption, that we've been adopted into the family of God. But when we call God our father, we're not claiming to have the same nature as God. We're not claiming to be divine. We are people, we are men, but God is divine and we are not. And we don't make those claims. But when Jesus is saying that God is his father, he means it in a different way, right? He means it in the sense that he shares the same nature with the father. Now, if he is a mere man, this is blasphemy. But if he is the son of God, it's not blasphemy for him to say that God is his father and that just as his father is working, he is working. And just as the father has glory, so he has glory, right? That's not blasphemy for him to say those things at all. But if you don't believe that he is the son of God and you believe that he's a deranged lunatic of a man, then what are you going to assume? You're going to accuse him of blasphemy, right? And this is why they are darkened in their understanding. Right, everything is backwards for them. Right, up is down and down is up. Right, darkness is light, light is darkness. Bitter is sweet, sweet is bitter. This is how it is for the unregenerate, for the natural man. He cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. No one can say, right, that Jesus is blessed, that Jesus is the Son of God apart from the Spirit of God. And no one can say that Jesus is accursed by the Spirit of God. This has to come from the Spirit. The Spirit must open our eyes to see the glory of God in the person of Jesus Christ. But God has not opened their eyes. So when they see Him, they see a wicked, sinful, evil man in their own estimation. But in reality, what they see in Him is what's true of them. They're the blasphemers of God because they're putting to death the only begotten Son of God. Right from the Father, full of grace and truth. And they're saying many horrible things against him and accusing him falsely. But now they have what they, what they want. And they are answering that he deserves to be put to death. That this is, in their mind, justification for him to be put to death, for them to seek and request that the Romans use the death penalty, public execution, for such a criminal. Okay, now, not all of them were in agreement to this. The majority are in agreement, but there were a few 
who disagreed with him. And one such is Luke 23. Luke 23, verses 50 and 51. Luke 23, 50 and 51 says, And a man named Joseph, who was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, he had not consented to their plan and action. A man from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who was waiting for the kingdom of God. Joseph of Arimathea, and we know from John's gospel that Nicodemus as well was with him, that both of them were members of this council. And at least here it tells us that Joseph of Arimathea, and likely as well Nicodemus, that they had not agreed and consented with their plan and their decision. That they said, no, this is not right, and we should not be doing this. And we know that Nicodemus spoke up on Jesus' behalf, that shouldn't a man be given a, uh, <clears throat> shouldn't he be able to defend himself before uh, he is executed, before uh, he is condemned? And then they said, are you one of his disciples too? And they started to, uh, to let him have it as well. So, so, but here, Joseph and Nicodemus, they do not consent to these things. But the rest of them, the majority of them do. And now they have determined this Jewish council to hand him over to the Romans and to ask them to put him to death. And all of this is according to the will of God. Now, they could have just torn him to pieces. And they're not against doing those kinds of things. We know from Acts chapter 7 and 8, that's what they did to Stephen. They didn't go to the Romans and ask the Romans to put Stephen to death. They just drug him out and stoned him to death. But here, they don't do that. And why? Because of the will of God. Because of the God is directing everything that they do. And it's necessary for Jesus to die on the cross. For Him to be lifted up on a cross. And for Him to be hanged on a tree. Because it, He is bearing the curse of God because of our sin. Okay, so then verse 67. Then they spat in His face and beat Him with their fists and others slapped Him. And said, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Now they begin to torment him. They've already tormented him in a psychological way by bringing him before this kangaroo court and doing those types of things. Now the physical abuse begins in earnest against him, right? And they begin to do very horrible things to Jesus Christ, spitting in his face, right? Which is a very degrading, humiliating Right? No one likes that. Right? No one wants somebody spitting in their face. Even today, this is considered a very insulting, very offensive thing for someone to spit on you or to spit in your face. And yet here, they're spitting in his face. They're beating him with their fist. And they're slapping him. So they're descending into this kind of mob violence where they're abusing him in this way in order to humiliate him, to insult him, and to be very cruel and brutal toward our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what He endures because of whose sin? Because of our sin. Because of our sin. And also, were it not for the grace of God, we could be right there with them doing the exact same thing. So when we see these things, and it should cause our blood to boil a little bit, right? That somebody would do this to our Lord and Savior, and that's good and right for us to have that love and affection for Him. But we also have to remember that all this He is undergoing because of our sin. That we are responsible, and in a sense, we are present with these people whenever they are insulting and abusing Christ in this way. Because it is our sin that put Him in this situation, and 
the very nature of sin is to do these very things against God. And this is what in our enmity with God, our hostility against God, we would spit in God's face if we could. We would beat Him with the fist if we could. We would slap Him in the face if we could do those things. And now that we love Christ and we love God, when we see these things, it should break our heart that we had any part in these types of things against our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But it shows you also the cruelty of men. Just how evil and wicked, how cruel men can behave. The innocent, spotless Lamb of God. A man without any sin. So of all the people in the world, right? And we know people in our own life, our own experience, who are very uh, kind, very compassionate people. You know, people who are very nice. And you couldn't even imagine, like my mom, for example. My mom's one of the nicest ladies you'll ever meet. And if somebody did this to my mother, do you know how furious? I mean, it would be heartbreaking to see something like that. Well, as kind and sweet and innocent of a woman as she is, she's nothing compared to Jesus Christ. Right. And yet, this is what they're doing. They're doing to Him, right, in these things. So it, it just shows you how cruel, how brutal, how wicked men can behave to do these types of things. And then they're saying to him, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is the one who hit you? Right? They're mocking his position. Right? You're claiming to be the Christ, so prophesy to us. Right? Tell us, who is the one who struck you? Right? Knowing that it's just making a mockery of him in this way. Isaiah chapter 50. Isaiah chapter 50. Verses 4 to 6. Isaiah 50 verse 4 says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of disciples, that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not disobedient, nor did I turn back. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheeks to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. So here the prophet Isaiah predicts that the disciple of the Lord, the ultimate disciple of the Lord, the one who follows him perfectly in all things, who listens to God, that he would have to give his back to those who strike him, and that they would pluck out his beard, and that they would spit in his face. And then this is being fulfilled here in this passage. Okay, verse 69. To add uh, misery to Christ. <clears throat> right? It's one thing for your enemies to do this, but then another thing for your friends to bring more sorrow upon you in your most difficult hour because of their behavior. And yet this is exactly what happens with Peter. 69. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You too were with Jesus, the Galilean. And, but he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. Here, it returns back to Peter. And while these proceedings are taking place with Christ, 
Now, this is what's going on with Peter out in the courtyard. Okay, so Peter is out in the courtyard, and this is taking place, and it, is, it doesn't happen in two or three minutes, but over a period of time that this takes place. So there's a significant amount of time that he's there out in this courtyard, and there are people out there, and the people are mixing and mingling and talking, and they know about what's going on, right? Everything that is taking place. And this is also not a friendly crowd to Jesus nor to his disciples, right? This is the courtyard of the high priest. So those who are members of his household, his servants, those that are there amongst them are not going to be friendly and sympathetic to Jesus and everything that is going on, but they're going to have the same vitriol, the same hatred, the same desire uh, for him to be put to death as the ones that are actually doing these things. So Peter is not He's behind enemy lines, right? Is where he is, has found himself. And now they begin to question him. The servant girl comes. Just a servant girl, right? Not a soldier, not a judge, not a police officer coming to arrest him. Just a servant girl, right? What could be more innocent, more harmless than a little servant girl, right? Or a servant girl. She comes and says, you two are with Jesus, the Galilean. She asked him this question. You too, you're one of his, right? You're one of those who followed him, who were one of his disciples. Jesus the Galilean. Now that little phrase there, the Galilean, is, I think, not a term of endearment, but an insult, a way of insulting Christ. Because they are always saying that nothing good comes out of Galilee, and they're insinuating in this that he's not a good man, right? He is a worthless man. So, you too were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it before them all, saying, I don't know what you're talking about. So he here denies that he knows Christ at all. That no, I'm not one of his disciples. I don't, I'm not one of his followers. I don't even know what you're talking about, right? Who is this Jesus, this Galilean? I don't even know what you're talking about or what you're referring to. So he's playing dumb as if he's completely uh, bereft of any information or any knowledge as to what is going on. In John chapter 7... John chapter 7, verse 50. John chapter 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had came to him before, being one of them, said to them, Our law does not judge a man unless it first hears from him and knows what he is doing, does it? They answered him, you are not also from Galilee, are you? Search and see that no prophet arises out of Galilee. So here is what we were referring to earlier, Nicodemus. When they are wanting to condemn Jesus, Nicodemus stands up for him. Not that he's even really standing up for him. He's just saying, should we condemn a man without giving him a trial, without giving him a hearing? And they put this insult on him and say, are you also from Galilee? Right? You know that nothing good comes out of Galilee. So here this girl is saying it in this way. And Peter denies that he has any knowledge. It has no idea what's going on. Now you would think if you go back to Matthew chapter 26, which is the chapter we're in. If you go back earlier in that chapter, many verses before, it's such a long chapter. You think that you're in another one. Matthew chapter 26 Verse 33, Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, 
you will deny me three times. Peter said, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing too. You would think that this first encounter would trigger in his mind what Jesus had said. We're talking a mere matter of hours before. That, hey, I just denied him one time. Yet here we see how blinded, how dull Peter is in his behavior, right? And this reminds us of what we talked about on Sunday, that the high priest is able to be gentle toward the ignorant and the misguided. Is Peter ignorant of the fact that it's a sin to deny Christ? Is he even ignorant that Jesus had prophesied that you're going to deny me three times? No, all these things have been disclosed to him, but why is he doing it? Because he's ignorant and misguided. The things that he knows and the things that he knows he ought not to do in the heat of the moment, in the moment of temptation, in the fear of man, it overcomes him so that he does not do the very things that he wants to do, right? Even though he made such loud protests about his faithfulness to the Lord. Then verse 71, when he had gone out to the gateway, another servant girl saw him and said to those who were there, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath. I do not know the man. Here, another servant girl says to those who are there, so there's more there. She's saying to others around, that man over there, this man, he was also with Jesus of Nazareth. So she's pointing him out to these others, saying he's one of his disciples. But now he denies it, but he takes it to another level with an oath. He takes an oath before God that I do not know this man, right? So his denial is becoming more egregious, a greater severity or a greater sin, because now not only is he denying Christ, but he's attaching to his denial an oath. And when you're under oath, you're supposed to tell the truth. But is he telling the truth? I don't know the man. Yes, you know the man. You've been with him for three years, right? He's your closest companion, right? The one that you is your master, your you're a teacher that you followed for three years. Yet now you're saying under an oath that I do not know the man. And didn't Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5, verses 33 to 37, <clears throat> didn't he already warn about oaths and taking them and letting our yes be yes and our no be no, being truthful in what we say? Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond these is of evil. Here, he is taking an oath. He's making a vow but he's making a vow and then using it to promote a lie, right? Which is a very evil thing to do. And this is the second time that he does this. And still, does it jar him out of it? No, it doesn't. He's still blinded. He's still in this fog and he's continuing and persisting in this sin. Then verse 73. A little later, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, Surely you two are one of them, for even the way that you talk gives you away. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know the man. And immediately the rooster crowed. 
Here, a little later, the bystanders came by. Now this group of them comes to him and says, you are one of them. You're saying that you're not. You're making these oaths. You're denying that you have any knowledge of him or what is going on. But surely you are one of them. And what gives him away? Even the way you talk, right? Even your dialect, the way you talk gives you away because people from different regions speak in different ways, right? They have a different dialect. And those from Galilee have a particular dialect that is different from those from Jerusalem. And your speech, the way you talk, is like a Galilean. Yet you're saying, you don't know this man. No, we don't believe you at all, right? We don't believe you at all. And then he begins to curse and swear. Curse and swear. Calling a curse upon himself and swearing in the name of God that I do not know the man. I don't know this man, right? You keep saying that I know him, but I do not. He puts himself under the curse of God. May God curse me. May God strike me down if I know that man. This is very severe, right? So you see the progression from him making these uh, great boasts of his faithfulness and devotion to the Lord, then immediately running away whenever uh, they come and arrest him. He follows him, but he doesn't come and associate with him. He follows at a distance. He's there lurking about in the courtyard. The first one comes to him, says, aren't you one of his disciples? And he denies it. Then a second time it happens, and he denies it with an oath. And then the third time it happens, he denies it with swearing and cursing, right? Bringing a curse upon himself and swearing in the name of God that I do not know this man, all of which he knows is a lie, right? These things are not true. He does know this man, and not only is it a lie, it's an egregious sin to deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Isn't that a sin that's worthy of death, of damnation, right? Denying our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And all of this is happening of mere hours after Jesus has predicted that you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. And yet it shows you the, how the flesh and how temptation has such a sway over our minds, how it fogs us and clouds us so that we don't even see what is going on. Isn't this what's happening to Peter? All of this is taking place a mere hours after Jesus has told him, you're going to deny me. And he said, no, I'll never deny you. And yet here he is in the midst of this doing it. And he goes from one to the other to the other without, it doesn't jolt him and shake him out of all the things that he's doing. And this is because of the influence and power of the flesh and of sin that it has upon us in the state in which we are. And Peter is not a, he's not an unbeliever. He's not a, a, a false convert. He is a true believer, right? He is a true convert, yet is he a perfect man? No, he's still ignorant and misguided. He still has the flesh, and the flesh exercises great influence over him if God permits it. And if the Spirit doesn't open our eyes, we're not going to come to it on our own. It takes the Spirit of God to open our eyes to see the reality of our sin and to bring us under conviction. And then what does the Spirit of God do for him? Well, then that's the next part. And immediately a rooster crowed. And when the rooster crowed, that is what God used. That's what the Spirit used to shake him out of this stupor and to bring back to his mind 
the very words that Christ had predicted only a few hours before. And that's what it says in verse 75. And Peter remembered the word which Jesus had said. Before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. The rooster crows, and then that is what reminds him of the words of Christ that he had forgotten, and then it brings him under conviction. Under conviction because of what he has just done and the gravity of his sin. If we go to Luke chapter 22, and all this also shows us the sovereignty of God, that no sooner were the words out of his mouth, I don't know the man, that immediately the rooster begins to crow. Who is controlling all these things? God is. God is, right? God is, according to His will. And He does have control, even over the crowing of the rooster. I'm going to start praying that He'll cause my rooster to not crow every morning, <laughs> right? Because it wakes me up. Okay, Luke 22, verse 16. But Peter said, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him, Before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Here, accompanying the crowing of the rooster, is at the exact moment that he does this, who turns and looks at him? Jesus does. He turns and looks at him, and he sees him looking at him, gazing at him, and it, all of this then breaks Peter to pieces, right? Breaks him to pieces. And then it says that he went out and he wept bitterly, right? When he realizes what he's done, how he has denied Christ, how weak he has been, how faithless he has been. And, and Jesus is undergoing all of this, right? All this persecution, this suffering. And yet even there in the midst of all that, he still has his mind upon his own people, right, upon his sheep. And here he gazes at him, right, of course, to, it is a rebuke, a confrontation of what he has done, but also to bring him to a knowledge of his sin. And the result is that he goes out and he weeps bitterly, right, a very bitter weeping, which is a grace of God, right? It is a grace of God. Whenever a man is hardened in his sin, he doesn't weep like this. Now, Judas will weep in a sense, and Esau wept in a sense, but their weeping was false. Peter's weeping is not false. This is true repentance. It is a sorrow that leads to repentance, and that is God's grace to bring us to a knowledge of our sin, to convict us, and to break our hearts over what we have done to the Lord, to our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So when he remembers these words what were brought to his mind through the crowing of the rooster and the look of Christ, then it is what leads to his repentance and his sorrow over his sin. And it also is a reminder that our sins are always associated with forgetfulness of God's Word. When we forget the Word of God, it always leads to sin. So having the Word of God on our mind, meditating upon it, having it before us, this is how we will avoid sin. But whenever we neglect and forget the Word of God, then that leads to sin. There's always a one-to-one -one correlation between the two. And Peter would be a good example of ignorant and misguided. Right? In this case, he's behaving ignorantly and he's straying from the path. Though he knows 
that he shouldn't be doing these things. And though he has even stated he would never do these things, yet he's doing them, right? And this, again, is a perfect description of each and every one of us as well. This is what we all do in many ways. Now, one quick uh, cross-reference, Matthew 10. Matthew 10, 24 to 39 24 to 39, Matthew 10, 24 to 39. It says, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and a slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in darkness, speak in the light, and what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. Therefore, everyone who confesses me before men, I will also confess him before my father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my father who is in heaven." Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. He who has found his life will lose it. And he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. Here we have to ask, is Peter excluded, right? Because Jesus says, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my father. But if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my father. Well, didn't Peter just deny Christ three times before men? So will Christ deny him before his father? But we have to understand Matthew 10 as full and final denial of Christ. Peter did not do that. He did so temporarily. He did it in the heat of the moment, Right, whenever the temptation came upon him, he was overcome with fear of man and it led him to deny Christ. But he repented of that sin and then later he did not deny Christ, right? And we know that he was willing to go and die on the cross. So here it cannot mean that if someone ever denies Christ one time in their life, that that's the unforgivable sin and they're going to go to hell for all eternity. Right? His denial of Christ was sin, and it was wrong for him to do so, but this is not what's true of him in terms of his heart and what God had done within him. And it's a sin that he must repent of, and this is what he's doing. He's weeping bitterly because of what he has done. And then after Jesus' resurrection, he restores him again. He restores him, and not only him, but the rest of them as well, because all of them, in a sense, denied Christ. And it shows you just how weak we are and how we need the grace and strength of God. If Peter, one of his apostles, would do this, then are we better than he is? Are we stronger than him? Do we have more grace in us than, than he had? No. If he can do this, then we can as well. And we must pray that God would be gracious to us and that God would help us. Then also, two last passages. 2 Corinthians 7.10. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. In verse 10, 
It says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation. But the sorrow of the world produces death. Here, the sorrow according to the will of God produces repentance without regret and results in salvation. And that is the sorrow that Peter has. He goes out and he weeps bitterly because of his sin. But then there is another sorrow of the world that produces death. We'll see that next time with Judas Iscariot because he also was sorrowful over what he did, but it did not lead to repentance in him, but rather it led to his death. Then one last passage, Ezekiel 34. Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 11 to 16. This shows us, again, the grace of Christ. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in a good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. There they will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will lead them to rest, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and bring back the scattered Bind up the broken and strengthen the sick, but the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. In this case, Peter is a member of the flock of Christ, but temporarily he is lost. He needs to be brought back. He's been scattered. He needs to be bound up because he's broken. He needs to be strengthened because he is sick. And who is the one who will do this for him? our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And this is what he does for all of his sheep. And we are often like Peter, and this is what Christ does for us. And the only reason that any of us, Peter and the rest, will make it to heaven safely is because of the good shepherd who watches over his sheep. Okay, then we'll close with this one little reading from, this is a little booklet called The Bruised Read. The Bruised Read by a Puritan pastor named Richard Sibbs. Richard Sibbs. And he says this about Peter. Thus Peter was bruised when he wept bitterly. This reed, till he met with his bruises, had more wind in him than pith when he said, Though all forsake thee, I will not. The people of God cannot be without these examples. The heroic deeds of those great worthies do not comfort the church so much as their falls and bruises do. So when we see Peter when we see David, when we see the others, great saints in the Bible, there are their heroic deeds. We'll get to that in Hebrews chapter 11. And those are there to encourage us, to cause us to be faithful, to persevere, to press on to the kingdom of God. But also the Bible records not only their heroic deeds, but also their failings. And when we see their failings, it reminds us that they are men with a nature like ours, and God was not done with them, but God continued to perfect them and work within them. And God is the one who safely brings them into his heavenly kingdom. And it gives us comfort because we are often just like he is. 
right? We are ignorant and misguided in many ways, and it is the grace of Christ, His love for His sheep, that will cause any of us to safely make it into the heavenly kingdom. It's never been based upon our own works, our own merits, our own ability to keep ourselves on the straight and narrow path. It is Christ and Christ alone who does so. And even here, Peter strayed from the way, but Christ brought him back. And he'll do the same for us. So let that be a comfort and hope that just as he failed and his failure was very, very great. So we will fail, but there is sufficient grace in Christ for him to forgive us of our sins and then to safely bring us into the heavenly kingdom. All right, well, we'll stop there for tonight with the teaching. And if anyone have any questions or comments, we can take those now.